Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons. I'm Jessica Andrews. And I'm Jack Young. And today we've got with us uh, Hugh Lemmy. Uh, so Hugh Lemmy is a writer and author of Chubbs, The Demonization of My Working Arse, and Red Tory, My Corbin Chemsex Hell, both published by Montez Press. He produces the weekly newsletter Utopian Drivel and writes regularly on culture, sex and cities for Tribune, New Humanist and Architectural Review, among others. He's also the co-host of the history podcast Bad Gaze. Hi, Hugh. Hi. <laughs> Hugh, uh, we're wondering if you could start with a reading from your first book, Chubbs. Yeah. That's how the night started for me, pumped and horny as fuck. All bodies everywhere, all fleshy and clothed and pumped full of blood when the missile leaves your hand. People who are alive when alive means open, even forced open to possibilities beyond your control. Rich and loaded working class bodies are pregnant. We are flesh and fleshy life and we're opposed to your written codes. I want to touch everyone around me. The girl breaking this window. The two boys who've pulled the fed from his car and dismembering his useless body on the garage forecourt with fat erections struggling through their pants with bodily fluid shuddering through them as their prostates swell with cop-killing joy. Pure joy. Our bodies, alive and pregnant in this group who charge around the street, are what separates us from the zombie dead that exists in the graveyard of screens. This is my strategy, I think. My strategy is bodily love. Uh, thank you, that was great. Um, so I feel like you write so well about kind of cities and bodies and the disparity between the two um, with a link to kind of public space and private space and how those things affect each other and intersect um, and the way in which both of those things are policed and how that's very political. Um, and I guess I'm also thinking about how within your book, Red Tory, it seems very much to me that your characters exist in this very precarious space, like they exist precariously within the city, but then they've got power in their own bodies. But then we're kind of questioning, questioning, do they really, do they really own their bodies? And can people ever really own their bodies? So I guess the question is, um, can you talk a bit more about the link between the body and private and political spaces and kind of ownership and belonging? Yeah, that's quite a question. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess I kind of feel like um, urban cities have never really got over the problem of bodies. Um, when a lot of it comes from thinking about the way that like um, modern ideas of sexuality were sort of formed when with urbanization, you start to get all these people moving to cities and it creates this sort of like terrifying like political moral scare amongst like the bourgeoisie who are like you know they've they've got their capital they've chucked everyone off their lands they're building their factories they need people to come work in the factories people come great they're all making stuff and then they're like oh fucking hell we've got all these like weird people crammed into this space and then they're like doing stuff with each other and we can't control it and then you know they don't go to church anymore and etc etc and it's also then the way the shape of cities has like created space for that to happen you know like mm. not just cramming people all together but you know like dark spaces and 24-hour bars and all this sort of thing mm. which i think like it's never really come to terms with so that's the sort of way i try to like write about the cities is is, uh, is that like the, the the bodies inside the city and especially like the sexual body is like the unknown quantity when people mm. are designing cities and 
you know, from the very early days, like constantly trying to design cities as like a form of control, mm-hmm. but also a place where you live. And so like, what does it mean to be living in this place, which is all the time trying to like amend your behavior and change your behavior, but at the same time throwing you together with these like random um, opportunities for stuff mm. that you'd never have encountered before. Mm. Um, like a big part of that being anonymity as well, mm. you know, from these earliest days. So you go from this place where, you know, say in the sort of 14th, 15th century, if you're uh, working on the land, you're, you're, you know, you're a sort of peasant of some form, you're going to meet, you know, like maybe, I don't know how many people, like a thousand people in a year or something like this. Whereas now you'll meet that, you know, on the bus mm. going from the city. So yeah, there's these like, un- you're now this sort of unknown quantity with this anonymity and these opportunities. And what does the, that sort of anonymity then do for like your chance to do stuff? And then like your shame doing it as well. And that, like you're constantly aware of being watched and, mm. and that sort of aspect of the mm-hmm. cities. I'm thinking as well about um, your kind of love of Jean Genet as well. And a thing you put on your blog recently about uh, with Richard Scott. Obviously, his text uh, of poems is called Soho. And when you were writing about Jean Genet in the uh, Diary of a, the Thief Journal, this kind of thing, so uh, obviously a lot of that's set in Raval in Barcelona. And those yeah. two places are quite comparable as being kind of places in the city where lots of those dark spaces exist, where there are these like chance encounters. And I guess um, I wanted to ask about. Um, within that this kind of I feel like quite a lot of your writing like with the Genet thing it's kind of like an anti-romantic with a capital R mm. so there's like lots of textures in your queer sets about uh, like industrial smells or like the chlorine or like burnt um, rubber and copper and these kind of things and I wonder whether like this kind of taxonomy of the senses that you have going on like how much you are in dialogue with writers like Jean Genet and like the cities themselves, like parts of the city like Soho, like Ravel, this kind of yeah. world. Well, um, I love Richard's poetry. Uh, his, his, his collection, Soho, is I think, really, a really amazing sort of exploration of like a gay male relationship to a specific space. Mm. And I especially love it because like I have a similar relationship to it. Although I think he lived near London as a teenager, so he had more of this sort of teenage experience to it. Whereas for me, I was sort of experiencing it in my like late teens, early twenties. Um, and he writes this these really beautiful poems about um, the sort of historical specificity of Soho as a queer space, um, uh, as this sort of central hub of you know not just um, sort of early sort of homosexual culture, but also. Um, sex workers and crime and these sort of things, which is why it links, I think, quite strongly to Raval. Mm-hmm. But I think really within his work, he's sort of reanimating it in this sort of complex way where they do kind of become beautiful again in some ways, um, or romantic. I, want to, I think he adopted objects the term romantic. With but, a capital <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it becomes... Um, it's a poet writing about landscape, you know, but rather than the landscape being... Um, uh, these beautiful vistas or, mm. you know, this, this sort of romantic response of like a uh, a sort of love and terror that comes mm-hmm. from this, this landscape. He's writing about it in this very like sort of strange um, uh, way that's loaded with like human history. Mm-hmm. That, that, and there's, but there's still aspects of this same sort of terror and the fear and the coming to terms of your sexuality and what lies there. And then also what I really like about him is he's got this like really 
good access to an idea of sort of historical memory when he's talking about Soho especially. Mm-hmm. So he goes back and he um, he explores, you know, like a specific queer history of Soho, gay men who've been putting the uh, stocks there and um, Tyburn and this like, even this like going back to the Roman period. And then he sort of traces that all the way through to sort of the 20th century. And then, for example, the Admiral Duncan bombing. And um, yeah, we talk a bit in this podcast about this strange sort of life goes on pride that comes from overcoming as a sort of gay man, uh, the sort of brickbats of your earlier life and overcoming the shame, although that's still obviously informing your sexuality. And he talks, or we talked in this podcast about going to the Admiral Duncan and you're like there on like a, I can't remember what night the drag night is now, I think it's Sunday, but you're like there with a pint and you're watching this drag queen and it's like kind of crap, but you're kind of enjoying yourself, you have your friends or whatever, and you're like aware of the fact that like this is the site that they, you know, Nazis were trying to kill you, something, mm-hmm. kill your mm-hmm. predecessors. So, um, so yeah, I find his poetry like really moving for its ability to like balance that and to still keep it, and also because he still manages to keep it like really hot when he's talking about that, mm-hmm. like it's like really loaded of his own sexual desire, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. he transmits. But I think that's kind of different to Janae because, um, Janae comes from this like very abject background, like talking earlier about these like systems of control that like, he went through it all in France, you know, he, he was born an orphan and put into, basically into care and put into this like horrific orphanage for most of his childhood where he was sort of brutalized as a sort of passive uh, sexual partner quite a lot because he was like smaller etc etc and then he moves out and he goes and joins the army for a while and he fights in colonial wars in uh, in what's now Syria and they're fighting in Damascus mm-hmm. comes back and then the rest of his life is sort of in and out of prison and also he's got no money he's always sort of um living as a homeless person like a vagrant traveling around europe and a large part of that's set in barcelona where he worked as a rent boy mm-hmm. but he sort of works in this position of like how to change your relationship with shame mm-hmm. so he takes these abject um figures in society such as uh the people living in extreme poverty or sex workers or prisoners or criminals murderers um, you know, like not just like the way that today we might discuss, like, well, are these really like let's undo the shame or something? We might discuss today. Whereas he's he takes in you know, like a murderer, like someone who's like uh, a traitor, like someone who's like done some like really horrific crime. He then reimagines that as like a form of morality mm-hmm. by saying um, that that it's a rejection of this like greater system that creates those forms of life I guess mm-hmm. um, so he sort of inverts it and then so he's not trying to like rescue people into a bourgeois morality mm-hmm. he's just like overturning it by mm-hmm. looking for all and part of that process is to like look for beauty in these um, in all sorts of moments so for example in uh, so he looks for dignity as well as well as beauty in all sorts of moments so there's one moment when he's like arrested in Barcelona by these policemen and they find like a tube of like lubricant in his pocket that's been like used, so they know that he's like a sex worker and he likes to get fucked. And he gets taken to the jail and he can he's there's this whole bit about him imagining this like tube of lubricant on the policeman's desk and all the other policemen laughing at it. And that he like becomes like turned on by like their shaming, mm-hmm. you know, and like so yeah, he's and I in doing that he creates this like very beautiful way of like writing about the city and the idea of abjection and the way of taking the shame 
and turning that into sort of a badge of pride without just like mm-hmm. without fighting through it or beating mm-hmm. it or rescuing it he's just like living in shame as his like an abject shame as his um as his strength or something and a position of power yeah yeah and a position of power mm-hmm. and you can't get any lower yeah yeah you, you can't really shame Shanae. yeah yeah and actually from that he he develops this sort of political framework and uh, uh, a life um real like solidarity with people um who are constantly contested or trying to be fit, fitted around other people's political moralities, mm-hmm. where, where he just has this idea of solidarity, which is uh, not charity. It's just like we're both in the same position. I might be in your position. You might be in my position. Mm-hmm. That's why we're going to sort of fight for each other and we don't appeal to the others. Like mm-hmm. We just work for what we need. Because mm-hmm. I guess as well, you can only be shamed in opposition to something, right? Like there has to be a moral standard that exists in order to shame you. To, to feel shame there's someone looking down on you so then to just reject that completely it's like you're completely rejecting the opposition it doesn't exist almost. yeah yeah I think so and he um, yeah and he finds something for example um, in um, Funeral Rites which is a book about the end of the Nazi occupation of Paris in the Second World War he takes as the sort of hero in that book a guy who decides in the last sort of weeks of the war, the last weeks of the occupation, to join the Nazis. Mm. So he's like a French guy, and, and that's the main character. He then goes and like lives with these SS soldiers and like develops this like f- as as they're sort of being surrounded in this uh, flat, and they're sort of snipers, I think. And he it's about his sexual relationship he develops with one of his SS officers, uh, and I think a lot of his attitude comes towards his relationship with France in the. Um, he doesn't hold any value in the idea of being like a patriot for France um, and actually like the only thing that in that situation he holds value for is value, sort of a value on is um, the idea of being like disgusting and abject and, and opposed like the worst scum you can imagine mm-hmm. which in that situation mm-hmm. is like these SS troops mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, which is like a really strange complex thing and especially if he was writing it I think I think in 1945, so like less yeah. than a year than mm-hmm. after it was happening. Yeah. Um, but again, he creates this like super beautiful uh, prose out of like very dense, like rich prose out of these sort of strange things like smells, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. um, uh, things that were not, yeah, things that are disgusting, mm-hmm. basically, yeah, mm-hmm. become transformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking as well about. Uh, we're saying about Shanae's kind of like solidarity, I guess, across difference in terms of other people who are also objective, be it sex workers or um, whoever that might be, how that kind of then kind of reverberates to the like splitting of the LGBTQ kind of movements. Well, the kind of gay liberation movements post Stonewall and stuff in terms of branches that like completely connected with anti-racist struggles and things like that and ones that kind of were much more about siphoning towards the mainstream and I guess we're seeing that like blow up again a bit with the democratic primaries and how that's like highlighting with Mayor Vitek and stuff the the splitting kind of thing in terms of one being solidarity and one being uh, moving towards kind of a mainstream heteronormative culture and stuff mm-hmm. I don't know if that yeah I mean, I'd question the idea that actually the 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 more radical ones that didn't want to assimilate were necessarily very good. Well, 
were particularly effective at solidarity, like racial solidarity, for mm. example. There's actually an episode of um, Bad Gays that, that, that my co-host Ben did, researched and, and wrote, which is about um, uh, gay liberation uh, activists in San Francisco who tried to start a thing called the Stonewall Colony, which was like a... Um, they basically tried to like move to this rural... Um, sort of district in California and move enough gays in to like take over the town council. And it was a very short-lived sort of project and never actually got, got off the ground. But um, a lot of that at the time were people who regarded themselves as radical anti-assimilationist mm-hmm. um, gays, now would probably describe themselves as queers, who um, who were actually engaged in like some like really crazy sort of erasure of, um, for example, like the idea that this like land was uh, unconquered virgin land and they were or that they were like they were taking a lot of their cues from uh, this sort of strange colonialist um, appropriation of ideas of indigen- indigeneity mm-hmm. like indigenous communities mm-hmm. yeah really it was really weird yes yeah, um, and that that follows through in a lot of things you know doesn't, you don't have mm-hmm. to go back very far to find like um, in all of our movements and still occurring you know like that there's still they're still dominated largely like uh, by white cis gay men even mm-hmm. who, who are more radical mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know if you go back to even to like act up and stuff mm-hmm. it's like super mm-hmm. radical like mm-hmm. it's hard to remember when you're remembering those histories to like acknowledge that without also then erasing the uh, involvement and like work done by people of colour who were mm-hmm. like part of it or mm-hmm. lesbians and, and mm-hmm. you know, bisexuals and stuff yeah, because yeah. obviously like yeah that's a balance you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way that it's still enough, I think we're in the last days of it, that, that the idea of being gay or a gay man especially is like enough of a subaltern or like oppressed position to make you like, to justify or to be like in politically interesting is probably mm-hmm. going to die out after Mayor Pete. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe we've got another 10 or 15 years of it. I think in the UK it's probably dying out enough already mm-hmm. um, because when you look at him and actually like, I mean, if, if he were to win, which I don't think he will, I mean, I don't think he'll win the primary, and if he did, he definitely won't beat Trump. Um, if he was to win, I don't think... Um, I think that would be the end of it, because I think then you'd just see, like, oh, well, he is exactly the same as all the rest. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. his sexuality has, like, such a little impact on mm-hmm. the fact that he's just a Democrat establishment politician mm-hmm. and a, mm-hmm. um, a product and exponent of, you know, the worst of the American war machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just thinking about what you were saying about cities and how cities are sort of built in this way that they're kind of like premeditated and they're controlled, but then you put all of these bodies into a space and you can't control what they're going to do. And I guess I was thinking about how that links to desire and how your desires are kind of like organic and they grow out of and in resistance to the spaces that you're in. So maybe how there might be a particular like sex culture, which is, you know, you write about in Red Tory, that's specifically linked within a specific space. Mm. Like how if a desire, almost like if a desire is repressed by a space, then it mutates into something else or it becomes more in resistance to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like, I don't know, I'm probably not going to phrase this particularly sensitively, but I really think, like, most desire is, like, contingent in terms of it's, um, it's the result of, like, environment and, um, 
like just very strange little things, you know, like something you see as like a 10 year old or 11 year old that sets yeah. your mind off and then like that, that's his thread that like reappears like mm. 20 or 30 years later and you're like your sexuality is like something mm. you're into or I don't know yeah. um, but also in terms of like um, this is again like very unpopular I think especially in the US is like this idea that I kind of think that uh, there is an element of choice in, sex- in sexual orientation mm. in terms of I do think you can you can pick up on something and find it curious and decide to indulge more in thinking about that and therefore grow that little mm-hmm. kernel into something else. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think a lot of straight people, um, you know, have curiosities growing up and then decide I'm not going to follow that track and mm-hmm. other people. And I think some people are obviously, like, really like, overwhelmingly drawn to something and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I, th- I don't think people talk enough about, like, what might be positive about the idea that you can choose your sexuality mm-hmm. or aspects of your sexuality or maybe a better way to say it is that you can you can nudge and guide the way your sexual orientation and desires develop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that can be in resistance to, uh, like, people trying to oppress it. You know, like, I feel like as a teenager, there was a sort of belligerent, stubborn aspect of my personality that, like, refused to not think more about it because people mm-hmm. said, said you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand politically, like, why it's really important, especially in places like the United States, to to fight the idea that it's a choice because once you start accepting and talking about the idea of choice <clears throat> well the idea of it's a choice is like a right-wing conservative uh talking point the idea being that you should choose not to and therefore you know stuff like conversion therapy and mm. uh you, you know that if it's not an innate characteristic then it's it's ripe to be mm. oppressed mm. whereas i think we should just be fighting a bit more than that like it, it doesn't really matter whether you choose or not you should be allowed to be mm. it like mm. Yeah, Fuck or like off out of my sex life. Yeah, in like a, a nurturing. I feel like like people's sexualities aren't really nurtured. I, f- I feel like it's always no. You shouldn't do that. Don't think about that. You yeah. can't mm. in in all different contexts. Yeah, and if it was a different, if people had a different attitude to it, I don't know. Yeah, everyone might just be healthy about sex. Mm. Yeah, but then also like some of the good stuff um, can come out of the way you deal with like it can be a very powerful uh stimulant like developing a taste yeah (laughs) i'm trying to say Mm. you know like like maybe like i don't know like uh yeah obviously we should move to like a much healthier way of talking about it and stuff Mm. and like the the shame that's inculcated in kids about it i was teenagers and kids about it is like really strong like I think in in the UK, um, aspects of like naughtiness and not talking about it are actually like just as strong as the stuff you get in the US to do with like sin and mm. you know, more Christian sort of pers- mm. perspectives. You mm. know, like like I've been thinking a lot recently about like um, aspects of bullying that I experienced as like a teenager when I was like coming out and this like sense that I didn't really grasp until like kind of quite recently that that the form of bullying was. Um, was like a process of abjection that happened to like all queer kids where I was from um, and uh, there was like there was no help it was like say, during section 28 but um, but the, the, yeah this aspect to do of like the sense of the bullying came from like this very bodily thing you know like it was people were bullied all the time but you were bullied in various ways sometimes like physically and shouted out or whatever but 
or mocked or you know like there's all sorts of like bullying strategies but I feel like for the queer kids it was like to do like you are going to become disgusting mm -hmm. and like a lot of and your body sort of becomes like open to be like discussed and degraded and mocked and like physically mm -hmm. as well you know being spat out or beaten up and stuff like that mm -hmm. and then that's been like this like really powerful driver of like aspects of my sexual desire and my brain and my, mm -hmm. my, 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 the way I think about my sexuality has like definitely come from that mm -hmm. um, and like making conscious choices in my like late 20s that like oh I'm, I'm actually going to deal with this by like addressing the idea of like uh, shame like rather than just being like I'm just going to try not to feel ashamed of my body I'm like going to mm. let myself feel really ashamed as part mm. of that sexual desire and see that where that leads mm. and that's been like you know super therapeutic way of like dealing with sexual desire and I, I guess that, that's kind of maybe what you're getting at in terms of like you're being shaped by your environment a yeah. lot of your sexuality mm -hmm. yeah or, or your des desires are often your desires are informed by negative things as much as they are by positive things I guess yeah. mm. which can lead to something it's not like yeah, all yeah, negative yeah. experiences yeah. Are, are bad for like your desires and this is kind of like this Mayor Pete thing like I think in my early 20s like uh, I definitely had a streak in me that was like very heteronormative and I felt like a very strong uh, loathing or disgust to like queer culture that was in any way about abjection mm. you know like uh, I guess this is like the time that like peaches was really big mm -hmm. and I felt this like weird curiosity towards it but I couldn't look at her performances mm. you know like I was like there's something there that's like really interesting but like I want to keep away from it and then mm. like my polit my sort of social politics was probably super conservative at that time mm. and I was probably like yeah I mean I know I was like I had some like really conservative sort of ideas and I think it was like this fear of that of being tarnished further like I was like oh finally out of that fucking home environment and school I'm off mm. I don't long have to like deal with that mm. sort of sense of objection mm. I didn't want to be tarnished any further with it mm -hmm. mm. yeah Oh, that's really interesting. I feel like people don't talk about that enough. They just sort of are born into this side. They're just sort of like born into what their politics are and what their desires are and they're the right ones mm. to have. People don't talk about the formation of those things yeah. as much as maybe they mm -hmm. should. But also this is a, like a luxury, well, a privilege, I suppose, that like I could, there was a path open for me as like a white cis man to be like, I could just go down this like heteronormative path, yeah. mm. which a lot of people would like never have that open to because their bodies are like yeah, put in yeah. that position all mm. the time anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Shall we? So, yeah, well, maybe another question. Thinking about shame and the abject is like, is there a sense then with what you're saying about almost staring down these things that you feel about like? that you had felt in your late 20s about like the shame in your body or your abject desire and stuff which was about like claiming it on your own terms kind of thing yeah definitely giving it form like there was a thing um, I'm getting it's getting really personal but sorry the therapy session. <laughs> you can talk about it no no it's fine if you want <laughs> I, I, there, was, there was definitely a thing in my uh, like I think it throughout my like early 20s and stuff where I like I really like um, put myself in my head and like I start to think like uh, my body I don't think I was thinking this consciously at the time but like my body being adjunct to something like any sort of like relationship I'm going to have any sort of like sex I'm going to have is going to be a large part of it it's going to be about like verbalising it talking discussing persuading even mm -hmm. and then 
realizing that this is like unhealthy like for example like i i think for a while like i was very sure about the idea of like leagues and i was like well those people out of my league and mm. but then you can like sort of chat to them enough and then they'll like mm. fall for you and then mm-hmm. you know and um i was thinking about this today because like they're talking about shutting down the dark rooms in uh, on canal street in manchester like any clubs with like fetish nights mm-hmm. and dark rooms and stuff and there was a post on it on like attitude or something on their twitter and there was a, sort of a lot of guys underneath who uh, were in that similar sort of heteronormative mindset who were saying like well it's it's a it's it's a poor thing if you know like a, a good club you can't have a good good scene or a good club night without people like having sex in the bar or whatever like and, or maybe i just want to go to a bar and not see people having sex which is fine like if that's what you want to do, go to a bar where people don't have sex. <laughs> but um, then realising, like, uh, like for me, going to, like, bars like that and, like, going to dark rooms was this, like, huge, huge revelation that was really, really good for my self-esteem and sexuality and development. It was going into dark rooms or, like, sex clubs like that where no one talks or people very don't really talk and then still being, and then being the object of desire from men who I found super attractive. Mm-hmm. It's like suddenly it just like exploded this whole repressive aspect of my sexuality that I was using to repress myself about mm-hmm. like um, over intellectualizing things and like mm-hmm. re-embodying myself and mm-hmm. being like, you know, like, uh, yeah. that's And that's an opportunity that like can only come from having a specific sex infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which again has its super privileges you know like there's certain, only certain types of body can zinc and engage in that and um, they tend to be like super cis male spaces and I'm sure like a lot of people go there and don't have those experiences but for me it was that's a super interesting and useful sort of different sexual infrastructure that, that those things should be encouraged for all sorts of people and for all mm-hmm. sorts of bodies and I mean and there are queer, queer sex clubs and queer dark rooms and stuff so it can, mm-hmm. it can happen I mean, like, I guess that links as well to sort of your 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 politics in terms of like bringing a remove. Hang on, let me say that again. <laughs> that links to um, the way you write about kind of the idea of moving away from this like hyper intellectualism and bringing the body back into everything so into politics and into Mm. writing and I feel like there's a there's a link there between feeling like all of the power is in your head and in the things that you can say because that's perhaps what you've been told on some level but how there's so much power in reclaiming the body and putting the body into those things Mm -hmm. um so maybe we could talk about that a bit more there's yeah well and the, and the kind of like i don't know something think about a lot in terms of the like needless separation of like ideas and the body whereas mm. like i don't know i think a lot of the time well i for sure with like sexual politics and ideas around that it's like you spoke about like wanting to bring back the body like not displace like the flesh and the meat of the world you were living in stuff from kind of uh like intellectualism and things like that so i wonder like um and at points you've kind of talked about like the kind of disembodiment that happens with lots of like particularly straight male journalists and how like that's something that you're kind of push trying to push back against in like the projects that you're doing or your politics 
yeah. Which of which of those was the question? Not really sure what the question is. I suppose it's more like um, need there be this separation between like the world of ideas or whatever, and like the our like interaction with like the body and our desires. Yes. Yeah. Just like yeah, I don't know. think about like Audrey um, Lord and yeah, that's what mm-hmm. you know, like uses as erotic. Yeah. Yeah, on that, on that smaller scale level, yeah. But also on a large scale level. Mm-hmm. You know, like what I was saying earlier about these bodies, the urbanisation leading to these like, bodies, these uncontrollable bodies being mm-hmm. put together is happening exactly at the same time as the mob, the idea of the mob and the mm-hmm. fear of the mob and control of, mm-hmm. uh, control of like public demonstrations and things like that. Mm-hmm. Because they also have a transformative effect in the same mm-hmm. way that the sort of sexual encounters can and anonymity is also part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like... Even today, like in the last election stuff, like, and I try and cover that quite a bit in Red Tory, is this, this weird fear of the mob as this amorphous um, sort of inhuman blob where people lose control and um, all the worst aspects of like human nature come out in the mob, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, um, I don't know if you've ever been in the mob, but actually it doesn't really necessarily feel like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it can feel like very strange, like riots can... can have this aspect of like solidarity and care and and self-protection as well mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and also like a lot of prefigurative politics happens when like in doing something you realize the ability mm. to do or the opportunity to do it mm-hmm. um, in organizing stuff in your community you realize how organization can happen and you meet people and your politics changes through the act of organizing mm-hmm. like any any political sort of major political change that's happened in my life and thinking about things has been come through putting myself in situations with strangers uh, and trying to do something and realising the needs of others through the process of like trying and transforming something mm-hmm. um, which takes like you have to put yourself into a mindset of openness and dialogue and people get it wrong and mm-hmm. you know there has to be a certain degree of um, good faith involved in it but those things can be super transformative mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a lot of those politics happen through like very bodily aspects like whether it's like a strike or a demonstration like a strike is it like removing labor you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and like moments of collective joy i suppose as well yeah and they can be super like life-changing and really uh, exciting and moving and mm-hmm. scary and you know everything mm-hmm. but yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, um, Hugh, maybe this would be a good moment, if you wouldn't mind, to um, read a passage from Red Tory and where they're in a protest. That, could you maybe set it up as well in terms of the two characters that you're talking about? Yeah, which we were trying to read. So I think... Um, 25. Where was it? Oh, sorry. 283. Where it says Otto grabbed his hand tightly. Okay, what do you want to read to? Otto grabbed his hand tight. Maybe we could just go. He allowed himself to forget himself, because then after that it gets a bit. I think it captures. You know, Otto grabbed his hand to here, allowed himself to forget himself. Hand in hand with it, like they. Just that short bit. Yeah, I mean, we could read the Ritz bit after. Uh, uh, I'll just do this bit. Okay. Better. Should I repeat then? To set up? So, sure. yeah, um, maybe this is a good moment, Hugh, if you wouldn't mind reading a passage from towards the end of Red Tory, uh, where the protagonist Tom and Otto are in a protest. And if you wouldn't mind setting it up a little bit. 
as well. Yeah, so Tom's this very like in his head guy um, who is sort of Labour right, you know, that kind of Blairite young gay guy who's been working his way up through the party and then Corbyn gets elected and he didn't really know what to do with himself so he throws himself into like sex parties with drugs but then he gets hooked on this new experimental hallucinogen which starts to change his, his way of seeing the world. And part of that at the same time he meets this young German anarchist who he gets a crush on slash becomes lover of. Um, and in this moment they are in a crowd of Labour supporters, uh, a protest. Um, Otto grabbed his hand tightly, squeezing it, and pulled him deep into the crowd. It opened willingly for them, then closed tight behind them, and they were sucked and pulled in organic waves deep into the heart. Hand in hand with a communist, his conspicuous feeling, his sense of outsiderness began to dissipate, and he allowed himself to forget himself. I mean, I feel like that captures quite a bit of what we've been chatting about, especially for the a character like Tom, who you say is so much uh, in his head, kind of like uh, locked into the like centrist norm or whatever in the book at the start, and his kind of transformations through the sex parties, through the politics that Otto introduces him. Yeah. And um, the first book uh, ends in sort of a similar way where there's this sort of mixing of like a political moment and a sexual moment in, mm -hmm. in like the idea of like a mass protest. Mm -hmm. It's like there's like a theme that runs through. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's the same book, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like there's obviously such a hallucinogenic quality. I think it's ramped up even more in Red Tory because clearly the context parties, but generally a feeling of like kind of very everyday quotidian things happening. But then, obviously within it, it's framed around the like drugs they're taking, but like a kind of curtain of reality being torn quite often. Yeah, and that's like a really good moment in which you can see that happening in a sense of like belonging and he says like uh his sense of outsideness began to dissipate and he allowed himself to forget himself so it's like almost a coming into the body but surrounded by other bodies mm. so that kind of like connections and stuff yeah um but yeah like the hallucinogenic aspect to your for sure the two novels you've written um is that like what were you moving towards when you were writing like that kind of s surrealist stuff amongst quite mundane things that happen? Like the action itself is mundane, but the way people's perceptions of things happen is uh, kind of increasingly hallucinogenic in both books. I think the ripped curtain is like a really good sort of phrase to use. Like, um, to there can be moments where you realise how thin your reality is and how constructed it is by a lot of written words. You know, like a lot of like a, a political news culture, like it can be shaped by newspapers and and um, stuff is taken for granted and then sets in and digs in, positions dig in and then stuff can happen that really does change it. Like these revolutionary moments where you realise how, how fragile a lot of the systems that have been established are, which I think is like a very difficult thing for English culture to deal with because there's been so few... Um, genuinely like constitutionally radical moments that's ha that have happened so the idea of a, like a possible change and what can happen is kind of limited in english culture um which is like makes it extremely conservative you know like mm. the idea of 
uh, free broadband for all, which was like one of Labour's policies at the last election, was like seen as complete pie in the sky thinking, <laughs> you know, over the course of like eight years. Mm. You know, it's just an infrastructure mm. that can be, fu- it's just a way of changing, it's not even a new infrastructure, it's just a way of changing mm-hmm. the funding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to the extent that I think probably most people did think it was complete pie in the sky. But then you look at the actual changes that are happening, do happen. Sometimes they're absolutely enormous over a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm interested in that as much on a personal level as like a wider political level that you can, you, you know, like um, it's not quite a veil falling from your eyes because I think if you rip through the curtain, there's just another curtain behind mm-hmm. it. But though, that, that's just for me like an interesting move mm-hmm. through, through those things, yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess something, because it's something we've been thinking about, or I've been thinking about, like, remember reading this when it first came out, which was last summer, right? And obviously there was, like, a pregnant possibility, I suppose, following 2017 about Corbynism and stuff, which all of us here could pretty safely agree for was very well and truly popped. <laughs> but um, something you've been writing on your sub stack, which I've seen to gauge from it is that uh, the culture that lots of us have been engaged with and has kind of been dictated a lot from, framed and dictated from the right for so long, which they seem to be, you know, the kind of Lawrence Fox, Katie Hopkins, this kind of culture that's been going on. Um, In recent pieces that you've written, you kind of have concluded that we need to kind of stop, or you're suggesting that like fighting the culture war on the right's terms as like a doomed like mm. vocation or whatever. And you say something quite interesting, quite powerful, I suppose thinking about post-election 2020 Britain and like the place of like art and political projects and stuff uh, where you say, and I'm quoting here in an essay, about if we must fight the culture war, we should do it as guerrillas, striking on our own terms before retreating to our communities where we can continue to build our lives, our systems of support, our music, writing, politics, sport, gaming and blogging scenes, rather than pouring endless energy into an outrage machine whose only product is our exhaustion and defeat. Uh, so I'm pretty struck by this idea of fighting the culture war as guerrillas and compelled by it. But I wanted to ask what might that look like or what might that mean to fight the culture war as guerrillas? before retreating to our communities. The British media is like so fucked up. Like it's such a, a, like a totally poisonous space at the moment. Like maybe even worse than American media. Mm-hmm. Um, because the news media is so powerful, like uniquely powerful. I don't think there's any country in the world that has quite the same strength of like opinion making happening in newspapers, like in print media. Mm-hmm. And because of the... Um, the cultural social framework that's like made that by which I mean is like they're all rich bastards mm-hmm. like uh, almost half of all like 47% of all newspaper columnists went to either Oxford or Cambridge mm-hmm. they're, they're all the same like they eat together drink together like the differences between them are a minuscule and they managed to blow those differences up to mm-hmm. b- to make it look like you have a political debate that's happening. Mm-hmm. And the moment they're threatened as they were with Corbyn, which was extremely timid, extremely mm-hmm. tame. Like, you know, like living living here in, in Spain, you realise that one thing that's been really transformative for me living here and discussing politics with people is that no one is ashamed of their political position. Mm. You don't have, and no one expects another person to be be ashamed of it in those discussions. Like you'll disagree, I think, 
um, I, I could be wrong, but this is what my, my perception of it. But like, you don't have to like justify why you're a socialist. You just have a political argument about why you think your socialist position is better than a conservative position, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Britain, there's this weird shaming aspect of like what's possible, mm -hmm. and you know, like no one in Britain would really say, "Oh, I'm, I'm a Republican. Like, I don't believe in the monarchy." Like, you maybe. A little bit, but it's not even a political discussion. Mm, mm, mm. So, like the the space that you can have these discussions is just like super limited by like these groups of people who all know each other and they all, you know, the differences are, are really super minim minimal between between um, Polly Toynbee and Julia Hartley Brewer, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. Like in the UK, it's like, well, yeah, one's like leftist and the others right, right, or whatever. But like, what are their their sort of political differences? Mm -hmm, you know, like mm -hmm. and um, Polly Toynbee sort of um, advocates workfare, for example. Mm -hmm. She was advocating workfare in the nineties and 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 two thousands and Blair. These sort of things, you know, like there's the same moralistic aspect about mm -hmm. like poor people and mm -hmm. um, uh, they don't. No one, you know, no one leaves London, or very few few of them leave London. You know, like the one of the amazing things in the election is like people like journalists from London going up north. And then trying to get a bus or a train somewhere and being like, how do people live like this? <laughs> you know, like, I've had to wait like 45 minutes and it's cost me like 12 quid to go two mm -hmm. miles. It's like, yeah, like these are the political issues that go on everyone's life. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about quinoa and it's <laughs> a political difference, you know, mm -hmm. or, or some bullshit from like North London. Mm -hmm. um, because because the, there isn't that, infra that media infrastructure is like so limited. So, so it's a bit of a rant, but mm -hmm. like, it's just crap. It, I mm -hmm. hate it. I think it's become really poisonous in the last couple of years because of the internet, which is the effect of social media analytics upon the idea of impact within these organisations. Like BBC, the Today programme especially, has been like driven to these cultural war issues because they mm -hmm. know that those are the things that are going to get shared, going to mm -hmm. get listeners. Mm -hmm. Well, they think those are the things that are going to get listeners. Mm -hmm. So it gets increasingly like... You'll have some news that'll be interesting news. You might even have some interesting debate, but then there'll be like the ten minute bullshit segment upon something that's clearly like a cultural war mm -hmm. issue, whether that's bendy bananas or um or trans people using bathrooms or you know, stuff mm -hmm. that doesn't affect most people's lives mm -hmm. and would never enter their minds, but mm -hmm. it becomes this like um point of attraction, this pole of attraction mm -hmm. that people move to and, and become more and more extreme on. Mm -hmm. Um until like people genuinely start to think you know like you know what's wrong with this country is all these trans people going to the bathrooms mm -hmm. and you know so well, when was the last time you met a trans person mm -hmm. let alone like mm -hmm. you know like this isn't happening you know mm -hmm. like there is no problem mm -hmm. with yeah. trans people using bathrooms trans mm -hmm. people have always used bathrooms mm -hmm. according to their gender mm -hmm. um i mean it's been a problem for trans people i'm sure it's an issue in trans people's lives all the time but mm -hmm. uh, yeah i don't know so um it's fucking stupid it's and, and it's made worse by social media because they then see these things like mm -hmm. going off and zooming off and and it's also made worse by i, I mean um good morning britain's like a real prime culprit in this but a lot of these sort of things is you can get a lot of coverage a lot of uh, feedback by having somebody on for five minutes who's from usually from a sort of uh, minority group you know or someone who's been discriminated against you know someone you get someone to say like onto Good Morning Britain to talk about um, you get like a, a woman of colour on Good Morning Britain to talk about why there's not enough women of colour winning the Oscars, mm -hmm. and you get them to talk and they'll they'll get the three or four minutes to like put across their viewpoint, which is usually pretty coherent and cogent. Mm -hmm. um, 
But then you get the five minutes of Piers Morgan saying, well, I just think that they should give the Oscars to mm-hmm. to whoever's the best. Or what if I just identify as a penguin? Should I be allowed to identify as a, as a mm-hmm. penguin as my gender? And, you just, you know, mm-hmm. and that blows up and then that becomes, you know, these poles, these poles of attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're totally po- poisonous. And it's, it's really, really sucking so much cultural energy and, or ability to discuss things that people go on and do it. I mean, I understand why people feel they should and sometimes there's issues that you know, need to be spoken out about, but it's just a machine. It's like a sausage machine mm-hmm. for outrage mm-hmm. that is driving people to these like dangerous poles. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has to be some element of like reassessing whether it's worth anyone's energy. Mm-hmm. Um, Rennie Edo Lodge talks mm-hmm. really well about it um, in her book and on online as well. Like, don't go on the shows. Like you're not you're not going to convince anyone about racism mm-hmm. from a five minute section on mm-hmm. Good Morning Britain, mm-hmm. but you are going to contribute to this mm-hmm. thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of time compression slots plays so into the hands of right wing populist slogans, which like mm-hmm. create simple solutions for incredibly complex problems and just like incite all of the yeah. That's this classic history. Chomsky argument, right? Which is like the nature of American TV is they have these adverts that come on every mm-hmm. five minutes and you, he says like you can't explain a new idea in five minutes mm-hmm. it takes more than five minutes mm-hmm. to explain something that's someone's never heard of them before mm-hmm. and then someone to understand it mm-hmm. so so by the nature of it you can't you can't persuade anybody but mm-hmm. it, if you repeat a thing that someone's heard before what if i identify as an attack helicopter or mm-hmm. what if i identify as a mm-hmm. as a penguin then everyone's like you know like that is the thing that just gets accumulatively built mm-hmm. upon mm-hmm. and the uh, um leads us to this like monstrous position as well where the, the political discourse is just like fucking stupid mm. the quinoa thing is like a <laughs> absurd, absurd thing yeah. like, this idea that there's like any sort of relationship mm-hmm. like it's a class signifier yeah but like it's not really important in terms of the polit- politics of the UK and yet it has become important because mm-hmm. um, aspects of like a consumption idea of class rather mm-hmm. than an economic idea of class or an identity idea of class has now like taken over as like the, th- the only thing that you can explain, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to discuss, you know, like uh, wage differentials or the fact that like the, mm. the income share has been dropping as part of the GDP for the last like 50 years. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say like, oh, he's eating quinoa and, you know, he's, he's out of touch with British population or whatever. Mm-hmm. And by quinoa, I was, I, mean, I, I was talking about this thing I saw in, um, on TV today, which was like a debate around a, a focus group in crew who'd been... The, the results supposedly of this focus group, God knows how they'd like actually done it, was that the Labour Party should stop concentrating so much on North War, North London quinoa eaters and should move back to pie and pint politics. What does it mean? Mm. I mean, we all know what it means, but yeah, it's yeah, also yeah. like, what does it mean? Was it actually? Yeah. Yeah. I think it also like takes the violence out of it, doesn't it? I feel like that's a very sort of British media specific thing where you get caught up in these things like quinoa and, and it, it like what's the word not desensitize it like takes the violent reality out of it so it's a way of avoiding yeah. the like the mm. like horror in people's lives it's mm. just like oh yeah the quinoa yeah. that's the but know. also things become a catchphrase so you don't actually have to discuss it mm. yeah. so for example like i'm not a fan of the royal family but the way that Meghan markle was treated and the whole thing about that has been there's actually an, probably an important discussion to be had there about mm. like the way that women of colour are treated in the UK mm. um, and especially by like the tabloids but it's not it's just it's her fault for being woke mm. yeah, and, yeah. And, and also like it just creates this like very strange like avalanche of weird 
misogynistic, mm. racist sort of man backbiting or something. It just mm. happens. I pause out. It's really mm. toxic to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm. So in terms of like discussing like fighting that as a a guerrilla war was that mm-hmm. the phrase? Mm-hmm. Um, I I just wonder like whether it's best to like. There's a, a friend of mine who's a media sort of theorist, I guess, um, called Jay Springer, and he talks a, a lot about this idea that he has caught, which is that your attention is sovereign. He's written a pamphlet mm. about it. It's really worth reading, mm-hmm. which is like basically you do have an element of control in all this, which is where you put your attention, and the media thinks that it can control your attention. Mm. And it's fighting for, you know, everyone has these eight hours of media consumption or whatever, and it's all fighting for their section, your attention, but you can choose where you put it. And actually, the best way to uh, overcome it is to then start using your putting your attention into more productive places mm. um, uh, and building some other form of infrastructure around uh, around that, where ideas can be shared. People can have different discussions and arguments, and that's been really useful for me. Like he 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 sort of started to talk to me about it in relationship to like people's Twitter usage and like that you have this like extremely almost poisonous relationship with Twitter mm-hmm. um, and he says well why don't you stop turn off the Twitter for half an hour and read these three articles that I'm going to give you mm-hmm. and then you realise that oh it's possible mm-hmm. you know like you can shape the way you're putting your attention like the RSS feed yeah the well. RSS feed he mm-hmm. uses that he's a big fan of mm-hmm. which is really hard to do because it like these things are totally designed to suck your attention mm-hmm. you know like Netflix is designed, I mean, Netflix mm. is not the worst vendor, but you know, they can, mm. all these technologies are designed to monetize your constantly mm. trembling hands of... Um, yeah, but we're yeah. no longer bored with... Swi- no, twitching eyes. Anxious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So thinking about your own projects alongside that, I suppose one thing that you have started in the last year is the Substack. So I, I think about how you spoke have spoken before about like oh, I kind of want to like this sounds very dramatic but like seize the means of production over like what output you put so be it with your bad gaze podcast you're like recording with Ben the two of you with your mics and stuff um, and with your Substack it's like a subscription service yeah. thing which is helping you to like uh, kind of set up yourself like as a writer kind of writing the things you want to write. Can yeah. you talk about that those projects a little bit and how they link to like, yeah, kind of like bypassing this? Yeah, well, again, a lot of that came from talking to Jay. Um, last year, Jay started a personal podcast called Three Hundred One Permanently Moved, and he basically set himself this task for a year, which he's now I think continue well, he continues, which is every Friday he writes, records, edits, and releases the podcast, which is exactly five minutes and one second in length uh, within an hour. So he's like, it's just an hour, one hour a week. And sometimes he says it's like a real struggle. He has gone off to talk about Other times he's got so much to talk about, he can't edit it down enough. Mm-hmm. But he's done it. He's done it like really regularly. Like I think he's missed a few weeks, but pretty much done it really regularly. And for me, it's been really interesting. Like my relationship with him, my intellectual relationship with him has totally changed this year because he each week I have a slight idea of what he's been thinking about mm. and each week he just develops something a little bit more mm. um, and I was like this is like a really really strong way of working mm-hmm. and uh, and also sometimes it's very personal and fun and sometimes it's very deep and a lot of times it's like more critical and stuff but 
So uh, I was listening to him do that, and I was like, this is a really, really good idea, but I don't really want to do a podcast. So I started a Substack because I'd, I'd been doing a job, like a research job on internet, like email newsletters for a, uh, a company. And uh, I was like, this is kind of a good model. So I started it, and the idea was that uh, you can, that I release, try, I try and do one a week, and it's a su- subscription model, so people pay about $5 a month or $50 a year to get um, one a week. So it's like basically one, one, um, $1, one dollar for a, an essay. And then I'll release one of those a month free as well. So I've got free subscribers and paid subscribers. Uh, and the idea was, yeah, basically to try and like shape my... Um, shape my output in that way and try and like be more productive I guess and get those ideas out and and it's been and also of course to support myself a little bit I, I thought it'd be like a, a little bit of money but it's, mm-hmm. it's become I mean it's not a lot of money but it's like it's the equivalent of writing a the four articles a month I get the same as if I'd write write one article for a newspaper or something mm-hmm. um but yeah so that's been that's been really helpful and it's also really changed the way I sort of approach writing like I've become like a lot more efficient and uh, ordering my ideas. I don't spend like a day or two worrying about what I'm going to do. I'm much better just sitting down and writing now. Mm-hmm. So that's been really helpful. Um, and I hope that they're starting to like come together and have some coherence over the year. Like mm-hmm. There's some definite themes that are coming out. Like mm-hmm. one, for example, about shame. The other about like culture war and media. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm starting to write a bit more about writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it helped uh, shape our podcast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a really good tactic for everyone and the other reason is that I was thinking quite a lot about blogging because also Jay was saying every time he saw someone do like a thread he would on on, on the gchat window that we always have open because he's working all day as well we're just mm-hmm. chatting to each other he always says um, write a fucking blog about everyone who's doing these threads because he's like you, you can't go back and reference this later mm-hmm. like it would be very hard to find or something like this and it won't have this long like people can't share it he's like mm-hmm. you've just written 10 um 10 tweets so, so it's like 250 words mm-hmm. something like this or how many mm-hmm. words mm-hmm. um you could expand each of those points and not like keep them trapped in that tree you mm-hmm. could expand each of those points it'll take you half an hour to an hour to read and then this stuff will keep feeding back mm-hmm. it'll keep having this like longer influence because mm-hmm. these are already important points but it's like the way that twitter works is it's really uh, a very fast moving discourse where there's no mm. there's no institutional memory at all about the discussions that are being had mm. so he was sort of saying that and I was thinking about it and realising some of the like, really influential ideas and writers of the past 10 years um, who are still around and writing really interesting things that I'm really into today um, all started off in this like blogging scene of like these sort of late noughties mm-hmm. um uh, I mean, obviously they had histories before, but people like Owen Hathley, Mark mm-hmm. Fisher, mm-hmm. um, Ryan Jones, mm-hmm. um, like there was these whole like blogging scenes, and those people still have this like uh, political influence in terms of those ideas that they were writing even back then. Mm. Whereas like my generation, my mini generation, my five years, those people, uh, other than like some who'd like set up larger and like organisations, they don't really have that same impact from their ideas because people can't go back and reference the ideas so mm-hmm. that was kind of the idea behind it as well mm-hmm. um that is kind of like a new form of like blog i mm-hmm. suppose mm-hmm. um and i hope it seems to be working this way that like more people are joining those newsletter sort of forms mm-hmm. 
and um, they're like connecting and sharing with each other as well. So yeah, I think there's like a, a did you wanna, sorry, there's like a democratizing aspect to it as well. I feel because say when you read, let's say Red Tory or the finished product, the monument or whatever, like whoever it might be, if you do not identify or you don't feel that like you're an artist or a writer or you've got writing in you or whatever it's like can be mystifying to be like oh how could I like ever get to that point because like the pedestal of the writer mm. or the artist or whatever whereas like the blog culture and like in reading your for sure with the Mark Fisher blogs but like reading your blogs and stuff when you write about process it's like creates a different kind of intimacy with your reader yeah where yeah. they're like part of the conversation rather than shut out which yeah. i think can happen with like the monument of a book and like mm. you know the way yeah. that's heralded is like yeah and when i was doing this research for this organization uh about email newsletters like one of the things that kept coming up is the idea about the inbox being a different sort of internet space mm. um that the blog sphere happened with rss feeds and then it sort of died off of twitter um but then the newsletter puts it back into this intimate space so you have like a different responsibility as a writer when you're sharing something to someone's inbox mm. like you can't really write a super aggressive mm. fuck you rant then just send it to someone's inbox mm-hmm. um or maybe you can if that's what they want but you have to like consider those sort of things and and um and the way that people read it is really different as well you know like i will i will close a, f- a web page that i've been meaning to read and just be like, oh fuck it i'll close it but i think, I, I don't I don't sort of mark us on the red a mark us red like a lot of the mm. newsletters I get and I put them aside and be like I will come back to that mm-hmm. so I've been reading a lot more from, from that yeah, yeah that's true mm-hmm. it also gives you the power to kind of do what you want as well you're totally in control yeah. of what you want to say you're not writing for an editor or anything like that although having said that about the sort of BBC's being shaped by their analytics that is like this weird thing that you get access to all your own analytics so you realise like oh, this one did really well like this one mm. didn't, didn't, didn't do well. Oh, you have God. to think about it. And then you're shaping bit. yourself. Yeah, and like where you release it, you know, like my friends, like you got to release, you got to release these things like a certain type of day. Like don't send yeah. it at like five o'clock when someone's just about to leave the office. Yeah. You know, like algorithms. Yeah, some people do. Like um, the writer Warren Ellis, Ellis, he puts one out every Sunday, which I think is like a really interesting idea because mm. it's like a Sunday morning, you know, like mm. the space that you've got. So you do start to think a little bit more about these sort of aspects of like when you're going to put stuff out and how to get the connections and the readers mm. and mm. and also like what gets you more subscribers mm-hmm. um, not necessarily from a monetary point of view it's just like mm. when you first start off it's kind of strange like putting myself in and writing and then sending your email and I guess like mm. six people mm. can yeah. you see who signed up to it yeah yeah uh, it's not just in the ether you can see me <laughs> yeah, no, you can you can see you can see whether they've opened it as well oh, oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so maybe you know more about us than you do yeah but it's also quite good because of having worked in like that sort of um worked in marketing and stuff before it's like you you know what you're expecting in terms of um engagement rates mm-hmm. and um like normally it's much over like industry averages because it's personal so that's like mm-hmm. really satisfying you're like yeah like actually people do want to read it mm. like, i've had like a sort of solid about between like 75 eight percent open rate Mm. Um, for like the entire time so that's like giving me a little bit of moral support mm-hmm. it's like yeah. yeah I guess the hope would be as well that like as it builds and people are reading for you per se that you also get to shape like what makes you tick or what matters to you but also matter to the people who are like subscribing to you yeah. as well yeah. like as it develops I don't know. yeah and the thing that I'd like to encourage I think would be 
uh, more interesting is to get into the same the one of the things that made the blogosphere such so potent for for a few years was the engagement people had with each other's blogs mm. both in comments and in their own posts so people would post something and then a week later you'd get like a response or someone building on this idea mm. um, and that also then emerged into like more bricks and mortar infrastructure for example like zero books mm-hmm. that became read to, mm-hmm. read to books that mm-hmm. sort of came out of that sort mm-hmm. of thing like you know people were putting together like long like long pieces of work or building bodies of ideas and mm-hmm. then put those out mm-hmm. of which capitalist realism is like mm-hmm. the pinnacle of that yeah, success yeah. I think and there's still great books coming out repeated mm. yeah. and I guess that as well as kind of counteracting this toxic media thing it sort of democratises it as well and returns it to like to have intellectual ideas you don't have to be a Guardian journalist mm. you know like mm. yeah it, it, it's lots of people can, mm. can write yeah. and, mm. and strangely anonymises it as well like I, fo- I follow some people who you know they, it's just a, this writing I've, I've seen one or two and I'm like yeah that's the sort of thing I want to have be reading so I'm not trying mm. to get off Twitter and just like read this stuff coming into my inbox mm-hmm. this one like really fucking weird uh, one about architecture like London architecture I'm really into which is like a sort of reads as a sort of like drug adult, adult like ballard take, <laughs> take on like the like you know the the a wood green view cinema or something <laughs> Sounds or like dr phil's mansion or you know yeah. yeah so you find stuff like that and you're like oh this is yeah like this is what i used to love about going online it's like finding yeah, yeah. this like weird person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. writing really interesting stuff mm-hmm. rather than just what's like fed into your feed yeah mm. thanks very much for coming on tender buttons Hugh. it's been very illuminating to chat to you about all of these things um, and we were wondering if to end you might do another reading for us. Oh yeah, before you end, we're going to put a link on the website SoundCloud to uh, Hugh's Substack where you can subscribe to his essays uh, and also things like the Bad Games podcast and different references that we've talked about today we'll put up on that. Anyway, thanks Hugh, if you could finish it. Thank you. A fizzing white noise fills my ear, dripping into my in- dripping down my internal tubes like hot cocaine into my gullet. My throat is burning. The room is filled with energy, movement, noise, light. My eyes blur. London seems far away now. Feet aren't connected to pavement. Eyes aren't fixed down on phones. Instead, the heat of my arse is joined with that power that has hung over the city like a deluded smog all summer. An electric smog that keeps the rain away, that channels each sharp frustration towards the sky. And it's ending. It's mine, my arse. Sleepless, wireless, pinned a hundred foot over the building sites. A mesh of bitter data, buffering social disorder. High up above the estates, amongst the England flags, my arse is transforming the atmosphere. I push back into the orgasm, my vision full white, and above me an almighty roar of air sucked out of my lungs, out of the room, the whole street, pulled up towards the gathering clouds. Fag packets, fried chicken boxes, phone cards, pulled from the gutters up into the storm. My body quivering of anal orgasm and the room is mine and the lightning that fills the room, in, the room glows and my orgasm is gone and the violence is gone, retreating through the window with the electricity and Owen is gone, collapsed on top of me and moving no more and I take a deep breath of the airless room. The city is rattled and changed. The sky bruised purple with pure cop hatred. My arse has done the impossible, punched murder into desire. <laughs>